Well, good morning and welcome to Friends Church. We're glad that you chose to be here worshiping with us this morning. I hope you had a great week as we've uh, celebrated Christ and his resurrection. And, and now we've kind of taken a breath and we're saying, kind of, what next? What next? And uh, so we'll get into that in a minute, but welcome. We're glad you're here. I, hopefully, I'm not the first person to tell you that. If you're visiting with us, welcome. And hopefully, you all received the program when you came in. There are uh, announcements about what's going on in the church. There are also connection cards in there, as Seth mentioned, if you fill that out. If you're a visitor, please, if you don't mind putting your name and address, we'll get you a, a something in the mail, a, a gift for being here. We thank you for that. Um, I'm not Pastor Kevin, I'm Steve, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Pastor Kevin is headed, and family have headed to our uh, pastor's conference, and uh, Sheila and I will be joining him in just a few days, excited about that. So you can be praying for our eastern region, our pastors, for our yearly meeting as we gather together and to be refreshed, to be renewed, and to learn uh, this next week. So where are we and where do we go from here? Over the last few weeks as we've been through our epic series, we ended up by really affirming that Jesus is who he says he is. God is creator. He's seen our sin. He's seen our rebellion. And he made a provision for that through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again. And we celebrate that. And last week as we talked, part of that celebration is becoming a follower of Christ. Once we accept Christ, once he says, yes, I believe in you, then we become a follower. But what next? And as we looked at, what, okay, what next? Well, we can't stay where we are. We talked about growing a few weeks ago. And we said, we can't be a Christian and continue to live the same type of life we've always lived. We need to grow. We need to be mature. We need to become a disciple of Christ. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And I always wonder, what does he mean, make disciples? How does a disciple act? In fact, as I've thought about this over and over again, the question keeps coming up to me, and maybe to you too. What does a mature Christian look like? We have a picture up here. I was wondering if you could pick out the mature Christian. <laughs> Which one of those is the mature Christian? Actually, this isn't a picture. This is an actual photograph taken at one of our staff meetings. I was looking at that and I said, okay, how can I pick out the mature Christian and, and what does, and I kept asking in my mind, but I even verbalized it, you know, sometimes, what does a disciple look like? When we try to train, in fact, you probably wonder what goes on in these meetings with all these folks here. And part of what we're doing is we're saying, how can we help people become more mature? How can we help them grow in their Christian faith? How can we be part of making them, bringing them along in their Christian growth? And so we look at this and I said, what is the mark? What is the mark of a true Christian? And Pastor Walt, I think it was, told me. He said, their left eye twitches. So, so <laughs> I don't remember if that was Pastor Walt or not, but somebody told me that at one time. Is that really it? How do you know? And I kept asking. In fact, we started, what is a true, how do we know if we're really being a disciple of Christ? And I kept asking that over and over again. What is a true disciple like? And what do they look like? And in my preparation for the sermon, and as I got to looking, I came across this verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. It just says this, those who say 
they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Look at that again. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. As I looked at that, and as I reflected on it, I realized all along I've been asking the wrong question. I've been asking the wrong question. It's tough to get to the right answer when you ask the wrong question. The wrong question was, what does a Christian look like? What does a mature Christian look like? The answer or the right question is, who does a mature Christian look like? Who do we want to become like? It's not what. It's not a checklist of things. But it's who do I want to reflect? Who do I want to set as my standard? And it's who? It's Jesus Christ. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. So I started thinking again and reflecting. It's not, it's not what, it's who. In fact, John Ortberg in his book, um, The Life You've Always Wanted, says this. To grow spiritually means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our own unique place. To perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through his eyes, through our eyes. To think what he would think and to feel what he would feel. And therefore, do what he would do. I want you to look at a couple things in there. First of all, Jesus, how he would be in our own unique place. If Jesus stepped into your shoes, you know, we don't got to go, don't have to go overseas to serve Jesus. We don't have to be a missionary or we don't have to do crazy things. We can serve Jesus and we do serve Jesus every day where we go, where we are. And if Jesus in your own unique place stepped into your shoes and walked with you tomorrow into your place of work, if Jesus walked with you into your school or into your home, can you, can we perceive as if it was Jesus looking? Would we see the things that Jesus sees? Would we think the things that Jesus thinks? And would we feel the things that Jesus feels? And then would we do what Jesus would do? You know, we got that all those bracelets and, and shirts saying, do what, what would Jesus do? Well, before we can do what Jesus would do to make it mean anything, we need to see and perceive and, and feel what he feels. And so this process of growing, this process of maturing, this process of becoming a disciple is to become more and more like Christ. It's to be transformed day by day to be more like Christ. How are you doing I would, it would be great, it would be great if we had something to measure this. It would be great if we could say every week, yes, I am growing, I'm doing more, becoming more like Jesus. I thought, wouldn't it be neat if we had something kind of like a scale that you could step on when you would leave the church here today? Before you left, you would step on a scale. It wouldn't tell your weight, but it would tell you, are you growing more like Christ? Are you growing in your Christian faith? And so you'd stand there and one of our elders would be there and they'd watch. <laughs> and they'd go, ah, good, you can go. Next person, ah, good. And then someone like me gets up there and they go, uh, you better see the pastor. <laughs> but we don't have that. So how do we know if we're becoming more like Christ? How do we know if we're being transformed? And over these next six weeks, uh, just in case you're wondering, we're still in the introduction of the series. We haven't gotten to the sermon yet. 
Over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about ways in which we can measure that are we being transformed? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Is my life being transformed? And I hope, I hope you're not satisfied where you are. I hope you're not satisfied in a plateau. I hope you're not satisfied with a mundane serving of Christ but to grow and become more mature. And we talked a few weeks ago about the purpose of the church. One of the purposes is that people would grow. We want people to grow and become more like Christ. And so, and so, in God's, I think, sense of humor, the first in this series is to love all. And the reason I think it's God's sense of humor is because I think three or four months ago, I preached a sermon and series on love. I says, God, what are you trying to get through to me here? Love all. Love all. That's our first measure. That's the first way we test. Are we loving all? But it's more than that. This is just the short version that can fit in the program. Actually, we want to know, do I or am I loving all people unconditionally? Our test, our measure, are we growing in Christ, is do I love all people unconditionally? There's, there's a couple words in here that, 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 that bother me a little bit. The first one is that word all. The la- I've never really done a study of all where it's meant 50% or 60% or 70%. I love all people unconditionally. Is that possible? Can I really be 100% on that. Second of all, that last word, unconditionally, I think probably bothers a lot of people. You say, wait a minute, but you don't know what they've done. Or they've been, they've been nasty. They've, they're not part of us. They, all kind of things that we bring up and unconditionally. And we say, can I really love all people unconditionally? And so I, I, if you were to put yourself on a different scale this morning, and you would say, okay, I'm yes, I'm 100%. I love all people unconditionally. Or maybe you flip back and say, no, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm okay. Yeah, I struggle. Um, no, I don't even like my wife or spouse. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not good. Where do you stand on the scale of loving all people unconditionally? And so, with God's sense of humor and saying, Steve, you must have to preach on this again because you're not getting something right. I said, well, let's at least make a deal here. Can we find a passage in the scripture, if I'm gonna talk about love again, that doesn't use the word love? (laughs) Because there's a lot of passages we could bring up and we've heard so many of them. And I was thinking in my mind, there are so many examples, examples of Jesus showing love. Do we really need to state his love? And you can think of so many things. And one came to my mind as as I was searching through And it's found in Luke chapter 15. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. If if you want to look in the Bible, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew. And if you don't have one, you feel free to take that home. But looking at this passage, I want to look at Jesus. Because he is who I want to become in my life. And I look at this scripture And here is just the first two verses, and we're going to stay here for a while. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. 
that he was associating with such sinful men, sinful people, even, even eating with them. (laughs) I look at this passage, and the first thing I see is tax collectors. Now, we need a time out here for a second. Just, I want to make sure I would feel very bad if I didn't remind you that in eight days is April 15th. So if you haven't been to your account or if you haven't done your tax return yet, you need to get busy, okay? Just some wise information. Some of you younger ones are sitting here, what's he talking about? April 15th every year, your parents gather up all their money and they send it to the tax collector. <laughs> That's what a tax collector is. But in this day, tax collectors, you notice they're, they're the most despised, they're the first ones listed because the tax collectors, they, these, were, these were Hebrews, these were Jews that went to work for the enemy. They were collecting the taxes from the Jewish people to give to Caesar, to Rome. And how could you go and work for the enemy? How could you, how could you, these people that are so despised, they've conquered us, they're making us live under their rule. And so you're working for them? But next of all, it wasn't just that. These tax collectors were unscrupulous in that if the tax bill was $100, they would say it's $200, and they would pocket $100 for themselves, and they'd send $100 off to Rome. And so they were rich, and they were wealthy, and they were despised. And so, so many times you see tax collectors. I mean, we could, we could substitute a lot of people in our culture for that. But maybe that's picked up in the rest of it, notorious sinners. Not just sinners, we're all sinners, but these were notorious sinners. These were the well-known people. These were the ones... Maybe the big sins, the ones that you look down upon. They weren't the respectable sins that some of us carry. I look at that, and it just strikes me that Jesus, Jesus attracted this type of people. What was it? What was it about Jesus that attracted this type of people. They wanted to be like Jesus. But it wasn't the religious people. It was the sinners. How how completely backwards that is for many of us today as we look around the world. We would say, if you want to attract these kind of people, you need to water down the message. Never once, never once do I see Jesus watering down the message in the New Testament. Some of us would say, if you want to attract these type of people, you're going to have to compromise somewhere. Never once in the New Testament, in Jesus' teachings and Jesus dealing with people, did I ever see him compromise with anybody. We would say, well, you at least have to condone the sin. Jesus never condoned the sin. But Jesus did not condemn them either. Look at that, the rest of that. They made the Pharisees and religious teachers of the law complain that he was associating. It just made them angry. It made them angry that he was associating with these type of people. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it. In fact, if you read through some of these passages in the, in the scriptures, there's some passages in there where Jesus, in fact, one where he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, I know what you guys are all saying. He said, John the Baptist came, he ate and he drank, or he did not eat and he did not drink, and you said he had a demon. I come, I eat, I drink. You say I'm a glutton. You say I'm a drunkard. And you say I'm a friend of sinners. 
They were calling Jesus a friend of sinners because of the way he dealt with them. In fact, it even says he ate with them. He ate with them. Burgers with Jesus. All right. The sign of acceptance. The sign of love. Jesus, Jesus would come and be with them. Where today, it seems like that if we take a stance like that, the church people are going, yeah, yeah, tell them, tell them. And the people of the world are saying, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that. In fact, um, Dan Kimball, in his book, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church, he just spent his time interviewing young Generation X type people and, uh, across the country, and he says, why, why is it that you're not going to church? Why aren't you f- being a follower of Christ? And the answer kept coming back is the church people are so negative. They're so judgmental. I don't want to be around them. But yet here we see a man who had every right to be judgmental. He was the one person who could judge. And he didn't. In fact, first John, or John 3.18 says, Christ came into the world not to condemn, not to judge at that time. He said, I'm not here to, I'm here to save the world. And so Jesus would emulate this love. Jesus would emulate, emulate this compassion that drew people to him. And they wanted to be like Jesus. So Jesus knew what they were saying. Jesus heard us. He knew what they were saying. He knew that they were complaining that he ate with the the sinners, that he ate with the tax collectors, and this just was not right. And so the rest of this passage, or the next story, it starts with these words, chapter 15, verse 3. So, because of what Jesus was hearing, because of what these people were saying, It says, so Jesus told them this story. This was in response to their grumbling that he eats with sinners and he hangs around with all the bad people. So he tells them this story. He says, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. I look at that scripture, I see a couple things. First of all, I see the tremendous amount of joy, the tremendous amount of celebration when the lost is found. In fact, Jesus, when he's challenged other times about sharing and eating with sinners and publicans and all those folks, he says it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. I've come because I want to reach those who are in such need of me. But there's another word that I see in here. And I see this in this parable. He follows this up with another parable about a lost coin. And he says, if you lose one coin, you, you don't just say, ah, well. No, no, you search for it. You look for it till you find it. Then he follows that up with a, a parable. And he says, you have two sons. One's lost. Oh, no, no. That lost son is valuable. He's precious. There's a word, one, 
There is more joy in heaven over one, one, one lost soul who comes. And I says, okay, God, I want your heart. Where's your heart in this? Last week, we were talking the road to Emmaus, and it said their hearts burned. And uh, we talked about heartburn, not the heartburn that I usually experience after I eat something, but your heart burning. I think this is, I think sometimes it's, it's we need a heart transplant. We need to see and feel and experience the things that God experiences and feels and sees. And he sees this tremendous need of one. He says, I love them so much, I came and gave my life for one. For one. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And if, that, if I'm going to be like Jesus, if he's going to be my example, if he's my standard bearer, then there's something here that tells me how I got to relate to other people, the people that are lost, the people that in our world are the sinners, the publicans, the tax collectors, the, the, uh, who, the notorious sinners. I got to change my heart and become like Christ. There was something in him that attracted them rather than repelled them. There was something in his nature that said, I love you, I've come for you, and even though you're not doing all the right things, if I can just win you over, there is going to be a party in heaven you won't believe. There's going to be a huge party. You know, I I just want to be like Christ. Don't you? And if we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to try to take on his character, we need to emulate him. Being a follower of somebody is not um, standing back and just at a distance, saying, yeah, and observing. It's not observing. It's taking on their character. It's taking on who they are. When I was a young person, probably about 13, um, and maybe like many of you when you were younger, you emulated some people. For a lot of us, it's sports figures. You wanted to be like them. You acted like them. You carried yourself like them. You dressed like them. For me, and I'm going to date myself, I know, but there was a young man from Louisiana State University Went to the NBA and played at that time for the New Orleans Jazz. His name was Pistol Pete Maravich. Everything in me wanted to be Pistol Pete Maravich. Everything. I'd go out. I would spend hours on our basketball court in our driveway. Hours. Pistol Pete was known for his floppy hair. I let my, I just, Dad, can I grow it a little longer? I want my hair to flop when I dribble. He was known for his floppy socks. It was like he took the elastic out of them and they'd fall down. They would droop. So floppy hair, floppy socks. So I'd be at home and I'd be there stretching my socks, you know, just getting them. And then even if I can, get some of those elastic cords and snip them a little bit so that when I play, my socks fall down. I was Pistol Pete. When I was 13, I went to the Pistol Pete Maravich basketball camp. And it was, I think it was, Indiana, California State University, or Indiana, something like that, in Pennsylvania. So I, I never can figure out those things, why one state has a, but anyhow, it was a little college in Pennsylvania. We got there. I walked up. We're walking up, and there is Pistol Pete standing there to greet us. Oh, my. You know. We had a, <coughs> we had a great week of, of practice and, and working on things. And I remember even one night, it was supposed to be lights out. I don't remember what time, let's say 10 o'clock. And lights were out at 10 o'clock and they had bed check. Well, 
I, I've always had a little bit of rebellious streak in me a little bit. And, and this was the night of the American League All-Star game. It was during the summer. And the Indians had a couple players that were going to be playing. And I wanted to hear that. I wanted to hear the All-Star game. So I had my transistor radio under my pillow. And I'm listening to this game. But I could hear the doors. I could hear someone going through the hall, checking the doors. Open it up and boom, okay, open it up, boom. So when I got to my door, you know, click it off, you know, act like I'm asleep and all that. The door opened and I kind of acted like he woke me up and I kind of went like this. It was Pete. <laughs> Pistol Pete was looking at me in my bedroom. <laughs> I went through that week and you know what? I could do everything that Pete could do. I could, I could shoot, I could gun from 25, 30 feet just like he could. I could dribble between my legs. He was flamboyant. I could dribble between my legs. We, we worked on his skills of working between your legs and passing, spinning the ball. I could do all that. I could do a 360 in the air. I could do 360 spin, left-handed, right-handed, dead shoot, that make any difference. I could, do, I could do everything that Pete could do. The only perceived difference I could see was that when he did those, the ball went in the hoop. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When I did it, when I did them, if I hit the backboard, it was, yeah, you know, I got that. And when I did the behind-the-back pass, it ended up in the other players' hands and the other team, and, and the coaches didn't like that real well. Yet, you know, if someone would have told me that was important to put it in, I would have probably done that, but I didn't realize it. But I want to be like Pete. Do you want to be like Jesus? If you want to be like Jesus, we take on an attitude of love and acceptance. It says, it says I want one. I want one. I want one. I love him so much. One. One's all I need right now. Start with one. There's one. 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 That's the heart of God. It's, and and you, don't, you don't see the word love put in here, but you know what Jesus Christ did for that one. He gave his life. And he, that life and that love emulated through him as people, sinners, publicans, uh, all those who would be disrespectful would flock to him and those who were the religious leaders turned, or, turned away. So I wonder, if Jesus loved one so much, what about 10? What kind of party in heaven do you think there is for 10? How about 100? What about 1,000? If 1,000 people come to the Lord, can you imagine what's going on in heaven? Mind-blowing party. Mind-blowing. How about, you know, I, I was thinking about that. What kind of parties must there have been every time Billy Graham held a cu crusade? <laughs> the altar call is given just as I am, and people are flocking out, and they're coming down, and, and I can just see as people are coming down, they're, you know, they're firing up the banjo in heaven and the, and the drums, and you know, it's, just, it's just going crazy. Party time. Kill the fatted calf. Bring the ring. Bring the robe. Let's celebrate. For one, but what about for 10? What about for 20? What about 1,000? What about 10,000? What about 100,000? What kind of party for that? What about 120,000? Does God care about 120,000 lost sinners? There's another story, another individual in the Bible. I think we might call him this morning the anti Jesus, not the Antichrist, <laughs> the anti Jesus. It's a story about a prophet that had to learn what God's heart is. They had to say, God had to say to him, you need a transplant, a heart transplant. His name was Jonah. Fortunately, most of you probably know this story at least a little bit, so we don't have to tell it in great detail. But there was a city called Nineveh 
that the Bible tells us had over 120,000 souls in it. 120,000, not one, 120,000. And in this 120,000, God looked down and he said, Jonah, you gotta go tell them. Their wickedness has come up before me and I gotta destroy them. Go tell them. Jonah reacted probably similar to I would maybe at times in my life. If I was here in Cleveland area and, and God said, go to Chicago and tell them, you know, I'd probably get in the car and drive to New York, catch a plane to England. Jonah did kind of that same thing. He went the other direction to get as far away as possible. Jonah did, and, 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 and as, he, as he did this, you know the story, he got on the boat, he ended up overboard, swallowed by a fish. The fish, after three days, spat him out, and God said, are you ready to go to Nineveh now? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I'll go. And he went and he preached, and one of those Billy Graham revivals broke out. But see, Jonah's heart, Jonah's heart was not a heart of love, a heart of compassion. In fact, if we read Jonah chapter four, verse two, it says this, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Look at the characteristics of God here that Jonah knew, but somehow it had not penetrated his heart. He says, I know you're merciful. I know you're compassionate. I know you're slow to anger. And I know you're filled with unfailing love love. He'd experienced this. He was a prophet of God. He also knew this if he had read any of Moses' writings exactly out of, out of Exodus. It's a description of God and his love for us. One of the unique parts of this story of Jonah is this is the only time where God sends a prophet to people who aren't Jewish. This is not the Hebrew nation. He's sending them to the enemy. He's sending them to people they despise, to the sinners of the world. And Jonah didn't like it. He didn't like it that he was being told to love and to care for people who in his mind did not deserve it. He says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Kind of like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Jonah. Man, makes me mad. Jonah actually had gone out Outside the city, he was hoping, I think, spent out there to see God send down this destruction. I got the best seat in the house. But God said, no, my unfailing love reaches out. Now, if you continue to read the story, there's an interesting conversation and interaction between God and Jonah. Talking and plants and some unique things. But in the end, in the end, God ends this message to Jonah and the message to us with a question. It might be, depending on what version you of the Bible you have, it might be the only book of the Bible that ends with a question. Chapter four, verse 11 says this. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. And here's the question. Should 
I not be concerned about that great city? The book just ends. No explanation of what happens. It's a question. And I think very possibly God ends this book with a question because it was not just a question for Jonah, but it's a question for anyone who would read this book. Anyone who would turn here, we have to answer that. Should he or should he not be concerned about that great city? Yes or no? True or false? And if God should be concerned about that great city, I wonder today, looking down at Cleveland, Ohio, and it's 390,000 people, what would he say? Should I not be concerned? How about greater northeastern Ohio at Cleveland, Akron area, 2.8 million people. What about some of those cities that we would claim to be um, um, maybe not the respectable cities of the world or the United States? How about New Orleans and its 360,000 people? What would God say about Party City? How about Sin City, Las Vegas and its 600,000 people? Should I not be concerned about that great city? How about San Francisco? 800,000 people. God would say, should I not be concerned about that great city? God's love, he says, my love is so great. I'm concerned. If you have the heart that I have, if we go back to the quote from Mortberg, if we see things the way God sees them, if we perceive them the way they perceive them, then certainly we have to be concerned. But I know that can get overwhelming at times. That can get overwhelming. So let's back off. Instead of 120,000, instead of 100,000, instead of 10,000, instead of 1,000, how about that one? How about that one? Should I not be concerned about that one? Who is it? Who is it that you've got an opportunity to show your love to? Because Jesus would do that, and I want to be like Jesus. How can we express our love to just one? Without being judgmental, without being picky, without being mean. How do we express our love to that one? I've been touched by a story. Um, this story comes from a sociologist, a professor, a uh, preacher from Eastern University, and many of you have probably heard of him. His name is Tony Campolo. Tony, in his book, the kingdom of God is a party, talks about showing love for one person. You see, in his life, he was called to, uh, to a conference, and he had to speak. And the conference he had to speak at was in Honolulu. I know, tough gig, huh? But if you've ever made that trip to Hawaii, you understand that um, your internal clock gets messed up. And he made that flight from Philadelphia, Eastern University, great Christian college there in, in Philadelphia. And he flew to Honolulu. And he went to bed and he woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, wide awake, hungry. And so he got up and he started looking for a place to eat. And the only place he could find was a greasy spoon uh, diner that was open all night. It was the only place even near where they were staying. He walked in, and this place didn't have booths. All it had was stools and a counter. And he pulled himself up, and out comes this gruff guy. And he says the, the place was so greasy, and the menu was so greasy, he didn't even want to touch it and open it because he's afraid of what might come out of it. 
So he says, uh, he's sitting there, he's eating or drinking his coffee, and as he says, eating his dirty donut. And at 3.30 in the morning, all of a sudden, a group of women come in. Um, maybe not respectable women. We would call them working women. And they didn't have anywhere to sit, so they kind of filled in the stools on either side of Tony. And I'm going to tell you the rest of the story in his words. It's only he can tell it. He says, I overheard the women, the woman beside me say, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So, what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake? Sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you that it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made my decision. I sat and waited until the woman left. Then I called over the gruff guy sitting behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why? What do you want to know? Well, I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for here, right here, tomorrow, tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight, that's great. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even make a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll do the cake. (laughs) At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to another. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. (laughs) It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes with her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never had I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And as we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. When a birthday cake with all its candles on it was carried out, she lost it and openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm gonna have to do it. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. 
Then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Carrie, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure. It's okay if you want to keep the cake. Keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. I want to show it to my mom. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those rare moments, when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's not a church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. (laughs) I remember it was the mid-90s and somewhere around there and was on a mission trip down in Mexico City. And at that time, there was a couple missionary couples. One of them was from this church, uh, Joyce and Dave Byrne. And uh, we were there, and, and we walked up. We were on the edge of the city one night. And we were in what they call Mexico 86. It was high up. It was a dump that had been covered over. It was already in a high area. It was up high. And we were there when the sun went down. And that's, I think, where maybe my heart was transplanted a little bit. Because I looked out and I saw that great city lit up from outskirts high up and saw what now is 8.8 million in the city and probably 20-some million around. Souls that matter to God. When you get a picture like that, you get an understanding of what God must feel when he looks down and he sees Cleveland, Ohio. He sees Las Vegas, San Francisco, and I believe even Pittsburgh God loves. (laughs) Some of us have a hard time with that. But yes, I have an aunt and uncle in Pittsburgh, and I know God loves them, and I love them dearly. Do you love them? But let's start this week. I know that's a big number. How about one? How about one? Can we love one? Can we find that one person and see them as God sees them? Let's stand as we...
close for prayer. Father, this morning, we just pray that as we go, that you would help us to be light and love in, in this world to those around us. And that, Lord, we could become this week more and more and more like you. Lord, help the transformation process to start as we worship together. As we go, if you want to come down and talk, I'll be glad to, I'll be down here. We can talk about love. We can talk about God. We can even talk about tax tips if you need a file. Go in the peace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ.